welcome to Mission Now, a series of the Mission Matters podcast here at St. Louis University. Mission Now is a monthly conversation featuring Father David Sawalski, the Vice President of Mission, and Dr. Amber Johnson, the Interim Vice President of the Division of Diversity and Innovative Community Engagement. Each month, these two engage lively dialogue around current campus events, their relevance and impact from the perspective of their respective offices, and the ways in which those events invite all of us in the SLU community to live the mission here and now. I am Virginia Herbers, the Director of Mission Formation, and I am pleased to bring you this special series from the Office of Mission and Identity. Welcome back to Mission Now. We are here at the start of May, which means the end of an academic year. So as we draw to a conclusion in this academic year, we thought that with Dr. Johnson and Father Sawalski, we would do something of a retrospective through the lens of hope with everything that has occurred this year. Um, there's been good, there's been bad, there's been confusing, there's been joyful. So just thinking we'd end the year on a high note and speak about hope. So Dr. Johnson, Father Sawalski, welcome back. Hey, great to be here. Always a pleasure to have these conversations. And I usually do this sort of like couching moment. So of course, I'm going to do the same thing here today. First off, why did we choose hope for our last conversation? So anyone who has been affiliated with the SLU community over the last two to three years knows that we are in a serious few moments of crisis, whether it's racism as a public health crisis, the global pandemic, or our recent student deaths, we've been dealt a very heavy hand. And so I want to acknowledge that where there is a lack of hope, it is not an individual issue. It is an us issue, it's a community issue. And when we take the time to recognize it is an us issue and a community issue, then we know the urgency of healing and talking through these things in community. And so I just wanted us to keep that in mind, that it's not about you. You aren't doing anything wrong. You aren't having a crisis. We are having a crisis. And I just wanted to lift that up for all of our listeners. Yeah, I think that's really right. There seems to be a pessimism that's not slew unique. It's in our society right now. And pessimism leads to a sense of hopelessness that things just don't matter. And we're all struggling with that in some ways, um, partly because we've decided that something matters to me and everybody should be equally moved by that. And in fact, that's not happening, right? Because what do we keep talking about is division and, and how we disagree with one another. And the the desire to find common ground or even to have the desire to compromise, some things you don't compromise on, obviously, but most things in this world are not so dramatic that you cannot find common ground somewhere. But we're not working very hard to do that. And I think that leads to this sense that there's nothing to hope for, that the future seems pretty grim or dark. There's plenty of good things that are happening within our SLU community, within our national community, that we just don't often recognize and, and, and support and embrace. So in this particular moment, I think our first step in finding hope is recognizing that this moment is not ours to carry alone. And that now more than ever, we need connection and we need purpose. And we find that in community, even in communities we don't always agree with. Can we find purpose and connection, right? Because in this moment, we are seeing massive mental health decline. 
I also want to take a moment to talk about mental illness and physical illness, because I think we've stigmatized mental illness as this thing that is clinical, has to be diagnosed, and it's for people who are, you know, something's wrong with you. But when we think about physical illness, how many moments have we felt physically ill in our bodies? And we did not need a diagnosis. We did not need to go to the doctor. We just knew that we needed to do something, right? So if you have a stomach ache, you don't necessarily go to the doctor. You eat ginger. If you have a headache, you might take some Tylenol, some ibuprofen. When we are having bouts of mental illness, there are also signs in our body, signs that we need to rest, signs that we need to reflect, signs that we need to be in community or be around loved ones. And so I want us to take a moment to really think about mental illness as the same way we think about physical illness and think about those symptoms that just let us know I need to take care of myself right now. I don't need to push through. I don't need to be productive. I need to just rest and take care of myself. So that is how I am entering our conversation today around hope. I think one of the positive outcomes from the pandemic is that we've been forced to surrender some of these not particularly healthy ways of being with one another, being at work, for example, being at school. I think the conversations, uh, especially for younger kids, about when the school day starts, for example, are good conversations because... And I've mentioned this before, nobody thinks that taking an adolescent male and telling him to get up at 6.30 in the morning and then keep on cruising until 10 p.m. is a way to be the healthiest, best person possible, right? And nobody in their right mind these days thinks it's a really good idea that if you've got the sniffles and a sore throat, you should be in the office coughing on everybody. You know, in years past, you would be admitting some sign of lack of commitment to your work, a lack of an ability to endure and, you know, push through something. And that would be a negative judgment upon you. And, and yeah. I think that's, that's the case even in a place like SLU, where it's very difficult to get people to take that step back for their own personal well-being. And some of that is coming from the professors, you know. Why weren't you in this class sort of thing? And some of it can be just the systems that we have here. So there's a lot of things that we are doing to one another and to ourselves that undercuts this notion of hopefulness. And we need to look at that more closely. Yeah, I think that's something that is hopeful, like you said, about this moment is teaching us that in order to be well in community, we must be well within ourselves. And that requires us to rest. That requires us to take time to heal when healing is necessary. It requires us to pay attention to all of our symptoms in the context of working, learning, and living together. And so I am hopeful that that will stick around once this pandemic is truly over. What does it mean to take care of ourselves and be healthy and whole so that we can be in community with one another? Well, I think too, and Amber, you were also on this task force, the Student Wellbeing Task Force. And one of the horses I was riding throughout this process was, of course, it's incredibly important to look at the individuals, to look at the individual student and talk about the services we have available, talk about systems that may be creating disincentives to well-being. But in order for SLU to work, the individual well-being cannot be separate from the community's well-being. These two have to be in relationship because we don't come together here so that individuals can learn alone. We come together, especially as the Jesuit University, saying that together the learning is more robust 
it's deeper. And because we are together, we can do things with one another that cannot be done just by oneself. And so I think that the recommendations are particularly strong for individual well-being. And I think we need to work more on talking about what does the well-being of a community mean? And what does that look like? Absolutely. I want to bring in this really cool concept called critical hope. The definition of critical hope is the ability to realistically assess one's environment through a lens of equity and justice while also envisioning the possibility of a better future. Our youth are very much driven and motivated to change the world. I am so inspired by how passionate they are, right? But this group also is very much rooted in that realistic lens of these are the problems that we are facing. So when we talk to these youth about hope, we cannot come with flowers and rainbows and sunshine. We have to come with, I know that these problems exist. And I know that if we work together, we can heal our world and fix them. And for me, that's the critical hope that's bringing those two things together in ways that I think speak to future generations. So I like the idea of critical hope, but here is my challenge. We live in a society of critics <laughs> and we as a society and even as a university community expend enormous energy identifying and decrying all the things that are wrong. And it reminds me when I was in a different place where I found out that people at the school had these great ideas and then they would short circuit them, that they would never get to my office. And the reason was is, is that this is really a great idea, but we don't have any money. It won't be able to happen. And, oh, this is a great idea, but father will never agree to it. And so I'm just not going to take the next step. And I finally had a meeting with faculty and staff and I said, here's the deal. I need you to bring these ideas to my office and then accept that it's my responsibility to find the resources to get them to happen or to ask other people's input on there to see this is a viable thing that we should do. This is the next step we should take. But you shouldn't be coming up with these great things and then never taking them forward because you're convinced that somebody else is going to crush it. And I think that's what happens so often is that we are very comfortable in finding the flaws. And then we are too comfortable thinking, no matter what I do, it's not going to happen. And so you just kind of stop there. And if you stop there, then you're basically telling yourself that you have no hope for something to become better. It just doesn't work in a healthy fashion to identify all of the landmines and not clear them for the next generation, you know? And this is why we created Radical Imagination the Justice Fleet. So what we were noticing was that when we would go into community to try to problem solve, we've illuminated all these systems of oppression. Now, what are we going to do about it? And what we found was that if you ask an activist what's wrong, they will never stop talking. But when, when you say, well, what do you want? It's crickets. Because we've been taught how to dismantle all these systems, but not how to rebuild in their way. And so we said, well, what happens if we use this concept of visionary fiction and apply it to toys? So visionary fiction comes out of Adrienne Marie Brown's work, where she's essentially talking about if the science fiction writers of the past predicted the world we live in, maybe they weren't predicting anything, they were building the future. If we give organizers the tools of the science fiction writer, can our activists and organizers then begin to imagine the future that we can build? And they called it visionary fiction. So we took that idea and we mapped it onto toys. 
can we take a huge box of toys into communities and say, what's the environment, the community that you would want to live in? And what we found was that in the first 10 or 15 minutes, adults especially were very, very hesitant to play. They wanted a consensus. They wanted to talk about the problem. And we would have to say, okay, silence. For the next three minutes, just build what you're thinking. But once they got into it and realized there are no constraints, magic happened. We would have literally 20 to 30 ideas, viable ideas that we could use because we gave people permission to dream about the world they wanted to live in, minus all the constraints of the critics right now. With toys, there's nothing at stake. If you build something bad, guess what? You can tear it down and build something else. And so when you think about the constraints, the constraints aren't just in the systems that create the oppression or the systems that plant the landmines. The constraint is also how we think about those things and whether or not we have the capacity to change them. And if you eliminate those constraints and show people you can dream, you can't imagine, then I think that's where critical hope begins to emerge because then people start saying, oh, our communities can look different. Our interactions can look different. Our workplace can look different. We just have to choose to look at it differently and use our imagination to get there. One of the challenges I think today is we tend to be risk adverse. And that gets back to this point that Amber is making, that we'll work within the boundaries as we understand them, but we're not going to cross over that line because then all of a sudden the spotlight comes onto me and then I become liable to criticism. I become liable to challenge. We don't all have to be on the same page for most of the things in our life. But what makes us a nation, for example, what makes us a society is some of those founding principles that we all have agreed to adhere to. Once we kind of have those commonalities, just like if you were Catholic, you have a certain set of foundational principles that are what makes you Catholic. And if you decide, well, no, I don't, I don't agree. Jesus is not truly present in the Eucharist. That puts you out of, as they call it, out of communion. So there are some foundational things that unite us. And, and that's where the work of DICE and of Mission and Identity come into play, is to remind people what are those fundamental things that we've agreed to use to shape our lives together as a community of education as well as of faith. And as just as a good human community. Yes. Like I said, there are some things that are just indisputable. And one of those things is the stuff that just makes us human. I used to always think about suffering and how people approach suffering and how that sort of prohibits hope in some ways. Everyone is suffering and we all suffer to different degrees for different reasons. But the bottom line is everybody suffers and how we are able to handle that suffering is a deeply personal thing. But when we choose to decide that our suffering is worse than someone else, it makes us almost immune to empathizing with their suffering. So then we get into a match to decide, well, whose suffering is better or worse. So for me, that is also a point of hope. I am choosing to see your suffering as important. And I hope you choose to see my suffering as important. So collectively, we can alleviate our suffering together. To me, that's hope. Oh, I think that's absolutely correct. This idea of empathy, too, I think is so important, and we don't talk enough about it. Because what is suffering for many people? I mean, even the definition of it, what is it you see as suffering? Oh, I, I really had suffered. I, I had to walk to work today. Oh, how far was that? About three blocks. 
So when I teach intercultural communication, we end with a bell hooks book all about love. And people are like, why are we reading this in intercultural? And I'm telling them because when you choose to love people, love humanity, it's much easier to shift our communication strategies to be inclusive of difference because I truly love and value. And I want to know, I want to share meaning. I want to know what you're thinking. So I'll say, you know, in a, in a capitalistic society, love gets thrown out like this thing where um, it's a consumption behavior, right? It's all about consuming people. When we say, I love you, we associate that with ownership. You are mine. You're my, my partner, my person, my spouse, whatever. I own you. And we also look at it as consuming material stuff. So when you go up to someone and you say, I love that sweater, what's the next question? Where'd you get it from? Because I want one. Yeah. And it becomes love becomes all about showing somebody what material thing you like, whether it's a human body, a sweater or a Twinkie, and then saying, I want it. I got to have it. I need that in my life. Consume, 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 consume. And we've become so overwhelmed with consumption that I think we've forgotten how to love each other without consuming each other. There is good to be had when we just share space without consuming each other. That's a real interesting perspective. But it also goes along with that is that there are different qualities and different types of love. And that was always been expressed in the Christian tradition, for example. And it's seen in our literature, too. So love of a parent for a child, love of a person for, for a spouse, an intimate relationship, love of God for creation. How could God possibly love creation? So there's these different types of ways of being in relationship with one another that don't include ownership, but must include incredible generosity and a willingness to surrender something of yourself in order for that other person to be as fulfilled as possible. Yes. I feel like I got a preaching on here and I'm going to have to go with that. No, you're not. You actually invoked a dear friend of mine, uh, Dr. Jeffrey McCune, who happens to also be a preacher, but he talks about critical generosity. And what he is saying is at some moment, you have to decide to withhold certain critiques and offer grace and compassion to people and just be generous in your support of their ideas. I think of like a kid who draws something and maybe it's really, really poorly drawn. That parent, that guardian, that cousin, that friend, that teacher can practice critical generosity by saying, I am so happy you are choosing to make art because art makes the world beautiful. Keep making art. So sometimes being critically generous means pulling back in ways that are gentle saying, I think you have the capacity to grow and it's a gift. What happens when we couch our criticisms and gifts versus these finger pointing, condescending, you messed up, you are the total sum of your failures, how dare you? So for me, that's another point of hope, this, this critical generosity of, I am choosing to support you and push you to grow instead of tearing you down and saying, don't do that. That's bad. I think that's been a real challenge because the pandemic has kind of illuminated the things that we don't do very well as a society. And so the lockdowns and the separations and the isolations, and then this constant anxiety that I personally cannot fix. What can we do? How do, how do you be in community if you are locked down and separated from people? And we've had good methods of overcoming some of that physically, I guess, with Zoom like we're on right now. But it also has kind of uh, rubbed raw a lot of people who just can't bring themselves to have a generosity of heart because of what they're wrapped up in. 
And yes. so they, they strive for certainty and they've tried to find that community that supports and validates that security. And that I think then breaks us into to clicks and opposing viewpoints and makes it so difficult to find commonality as well as empathy for other people. Yes. That's you know, what we're gonna have to grow, grow from in these next couple of years. Keep in mind the pandemic's not over and we still have the opportunity to shift how we come out of this thing. And with that said, I, I wanna read from a book. It's called Undrowned Black Feminist Lessons from Marine Mammals. And it's by Alexis Pauling Gums. And what she did was she took encyclopedias of marine mammals. So these are mammals who live in water. So they are mammals who live in an environment that was not made for them. And so I want to read from the chapter called Breathe, because I think this story about a baby seal is showing what it looks like to go through a transition and come out alive. So for me, this is a story of hope. The baby Weddell seal has not grown into her flippers. She's awkward. She doesn't want to swim. She doesn't know she can breathe underwater. No one has told her about the great oxygenating capacity of her blood. She doesn't know that the milk her mother gives her is some of the fat richest milk in the world. Southernmost mammal on the planet. She doesn't know the depths of which she is capable, but her mother does. The mother Weddell seal will push her baby into the water against her will. She will force her child's head into the water while the baby coughs and sputters and struggles and squirms. She is new here. She does not know that she can breathe underwater until she does, and then everything changes. By the time weaning is over, she will be able to dive 2,500 feet below water. Stay there for an hour if she wants to, find a tiny hole she made for air after swimming 12 kilometers away. Move gracefully between frozen and lipid worlds, but she does not know. Am I the only one here in a lesson? a coughing, sputtering thrash, a struggle to stay who I thought I was, ignorant to what evolution has already written inside me. I feel out of my depths, but really, how would I know? The love of the Weddell Seal mother teaches a lesson about the difference between what is cute and what is necessary, what has been and what could be. And I am grateful for all of my mothers, biological, chosen and ancestral, mammal and otherwise. As the Weddell seal grows, she will shed her fur, become sleek. She will feel completely at home in the ocean she avoided. She will see and feel things no other mammal has felt. But right now, she is coughing and spitting and clinging to what she has known. She feels like she is drowning, but she's just meeting herself again for the first time. I'm gonna read that line again because it, it, it almost makes me cry. She feels like she's drowning, but she's just meeting herself again for the first time. Love to all my parents and the push of the universe for laughing at me. Thank you to those of you who have pushed me through portals already even out of this life. We can move between worlds. Thank you for those of you living and evolving. The vulnerability of your newness is an example to us all. Thank you to those who would hold me accountable, who expect me to be who I need to become. Thank you for ignoring the lies I tell about myself. Even in my resistance, I am grateful for you all, for the love you are teaching me, deep, black, and full, for the nurturance, push, and example. What you learned by facing your own death, 
what you learned in your drowning is my breath. There are at least three ways to love you, as you were, as you are, as you will be. I love you. That means I choose all three. Remember who you are and remember who you will be at all times, because we carry all of those iterations with us at all times. And we need to love all three. Got a little Jesuit echo going there. Sounds like an examine. What have I done? What am I doing? What will I do? I'm telling you, Father, listen, our office is mission, identity, and dice. We can be something really special. So let's keep working together and let's Absolutely. keep building. Building on uh, Jonathan Smith's legacy. Absolutely. And I'm not sure that's completely accurate, that we can be something special. I think we have been, we are, and we will be. And I love all three. Well, thanks to both of you for launching the year. I love that we call the end of the year commencement. And so we will commence yet another generation of hope. And I love the concept of dreaming about the world we want to live in. Hope being a finding of ourselves, finding a way home to ourselves that hope can save the world. So it is an equity and justice, a meaning and value word. And that it is about how to curate a future. So thanks to the both of you. Thanks for the semester. Thanks, Virginia. Thanks, Amber. You know, I hope hundreds, if not thousands of people will be listening to this. And if they are, I hope they realize that there's many, many good things waiting for each one of us. Absolutely. My heart is very full right now. So thank you as well. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Boom. Boom.